So this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18, at the beginning of that chapter, um, and I'm only going to read four verses. So it will be on the screen behind me. You can get there on your device, um, but I'm going to go ahead and read this. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called the little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's read Jesus' words again. We'll start in verse 3. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Um, I know we've spent a lot of time over the last couple years defining uh, what we mean or what the scriptures mean when they use the term the kingdom of God. Um, but just to refresh our memory, when we talk about the kingdom, um, we're talking about God's rule. Uh, when he exerts his rulership, um, his power. And when God rules, wrong things are made right. Chaotic things come back into order. And we can expect that under the rulership of a good God, um, that what we find in that kingdom is peace and love and joy, um, the things that God promises us by his spirit. I took an economics class in college, and of course in any economics class, there's these debates about the um, pros and cons of different kinds of economic theories. And I remember one time our economics professor asked a question. He said, what would be the absolute best kind of government? Um, and people had different, you know, uh, responses to that question. And then he shared his opinion, and it stuck with me. And I often think of it when we read about the kingdom of heaven in scriptures. He said, the best kind of government would be a benevolent king, a perfectly benevolent king. <laughs> um, that's what would be best if you could trust that ruler's heart that he only acted in the benefit of the people that he led. Um, basically, that this king was so benevolent that he gave away his stuff, right? Then theoretically, there would not be the need for the democratic system that we enjoy that makes sure that power is balanced and checked, right, with different people. Our system um, has worked so well because it takes in where it has worked well because it has taken uh, into account human sinfulness, right, and tried to balance out the darker desires of the human heart, right? Um, you know, no, I, I can tell you right now, when it comes to governments, there's no king like that on the face of the earth, nor has there ever been. Um, but God is that kind of king. Jesus is that kind of king. Um, completely in charge, completely in control, um, you know, directing the affairs of history, and yet for the benefit of those that he rules. So Jesus is always trying to teach his disciples how to recognize the kingdom, what it looks like if they were living in the kingdom. On this particular day, 
the disciples are arguing about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom, which is why checks and balances are needed, right? Um, because as soon as they start hearing about a kingdom, they want to know where their place is in it and who's going to have more power and who's going to have less power. It's just a very human thing to want to put ourselves into these you know, different categories. And so they're having this argument. You know, I love how Jesus handles this with his disciples. Have you ever noticed that many, many times when they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, he actually doesn't just shut the conversation down, um, which he could. You know, he could just say, uh, you know, that's a stupid question. You shouldn't even be asking that, you, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, he always engages it, even though he knows the motives of their heart aren't completely pure. He's always willing to answer this question, to engage this question. I think it says something about the dignity that God has given human beings. Um, see, a benevolent king shares everything including his ability to rule. And so he even gives this away. And so some of the earliest commands that we see given to people in the scriptures, right, are to care for the earth, to cultivate it, to build things, to multiply, to exert their own influence on the creation. God is utterly in control, but somehow lets us be part of that story, becomes vulnerable even at the beginning and sharing his influence with us so that we can use it. It's amazing. So he sees the good in the disciples' question. They're asking something that's a little off, but on the other hand, it's on point. They, they see that they are destined for something, that they are made for something. And rather than shut the conversation down, Jesus does something genius. He just radically redefines greatness. It's like he's saying to them, yeah, you can be great, but let me show you how heaven defines greatness. And it's not the way the rulers, the kings of this world, define greatness. So he gives them a new definition. In this passage, he does it with a living object lesson. Here's what he does. He takes a little child, puts that little child in front of them, and says, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? you need to become like this, right? Gives them this object lesson, this living, breathing, little child. Um, now, that is an object lesson that is worthy of contemplation, right, of understanding what it is that Jesus meant when he said that we should become like little children. And I would venture to say there's probably books filled on this topic, on digging into this picture and trying to understand what it is that Jesus meant. I love, too, by the way, how Jesus doesn't even go into that much detail. This is just like Jesus' teaching. He just gives them this object lesson and says, reflect on that for the next 2,000 years, right? <laughs> and so here we are still thinking about it, right? There's many different things that could be meant when Jesus says that to enter the kingdom, we must become like little children. But in the early hours of yesterday morning, here's what I was thinking about. I think it means something for me. I think it means something for us as a church in this season as well. Um, first of all, that kids in and of themselves, especially small children, really don't have any control, do they? Um, now, even my two-year-old 
likes to pretend she does, <laughs> right? <laughs> She's finding her little will, right, and exerting it on her little world, right? And, and I love that because that's part of what it is to be human. But really, it's Chelsea and I who make the decisions for her life, right? Um, we are the ones who set the environments that she steps into. We are the ones who really decide her schedule throughout the day. She pushes back on that, but we're really the ones um, who set it. Um, we love to be in control, especially as we become adults, for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes it's a mechanism to avoid pain. Sometimes it's a way for us to control outcomes, to look successful or competent, Sometimes it's a way for us to manage relationships. There's all kinds of reasons why being in control seems appealing to us. And then we meet Jesus, and we try to transfer those principles of control that we learned many times, you know, very young, into our relationship with Christ, into ministry. And so now we're still trying to control outcomes, but outcomes for Jesus, Right? Now, sometimes we're still trying to control relationships, but so that people follow Jesus or honor Jesus or you know, so that our kids follow the Lord or all of these things. We, we kind of baptize our control issues with religion, but it's still there. We still often just want to be in control, but children don't really have that capacity. Um, you know, I have here on my notes, children don't know things. <laughs> you know, there's just a lot they don't know, which means, and I love this, I love this in my kids, that the posture of childhood, of healthy childhood, really is in exploring and discovering and in asking questions, right? It's not in pretending like they have all the answers. I don't know very many kids who pretend they have all the answers. I know a lot of kids who ask a lot of questions, right? Um, it comes naturally to kids, especially very young ones, um, to ask questions. Let me tell you something about myself. I've had, since I was very young, a temptation to put my security in what I know and understand. Um, I love learning. I love reading. I love understanding relationship dynamics and how the world works. I love observing things and learning from that. I hope that I remain a learner for the rest of my life. And yet, putting our security in what we know and understand doesn't work because the more you know and understand things, the more you realize how much you don't know and understand, right? The world gets bigger, not smaller, in our pursuit of understanding and learning. Um, even still, I'm just going to be vulnerable with you. For as much as we want to follow uh, the Spirit's leading in these gatherings, I have to confess that many times I feel so much more secure in the way that God might be leading us if I come into this room understanding everything and knowing everything. And even, here's, here's how like deep this temptation can go. Even in the spontaneous movements where God is moving among us, I even have a temptation to want to know and understand that if we're going to have it, right? Um, I think I've been thinking about this because increasingly I'm leading in areas that I don't understand. Um, I'm leading in places, um, and God is leading us as a church in places that's new territory. It's distinct. It's new. It's, 
and uh, it feels like the learning curve is steep. The children don't know a lot of things, and somehow it doesn't ruin their day all the time, right? Um, they're okay existing in the place of not understanding everything. Children need the love of their parents, don't they? I mean, even if, as they get older, they pretend that they don't, right? <laughs> they need the love of their parents um, because it is their parents' love that provides them with protection and provision as well as correction, as well as calling out their identity. Um, this need goes so deep that no one ever has to tell a child that this is the need that they have. Um, as a matter of fact, some of you in this room know the pain of not having this, of not having your parents or a parent in the picture. And you're probably aware, especially as you got older, of a deep need in your heart for that kind of parental love. Children need the love, the safety, the security of their parents. And I was reflecting on this yesterday morning, how children need rest, especially the little ones. And it is a little child, the scriptures say, that got pulled into the, you know, that got pulled in front of the disciples. The little ones need rest. And this has everything to do with if the day is going to be a win or not. Am I right? Nap time is the most critical part of the day for my two-year-old, right? It's going to decide a lot of things about our future existence as a family, right? At least for the next 24 hours, right? This nap. But if you would see my daughter, my two-year-old daughter, you would see that her physical capacities are just limited at that age. She's going to hit a part of the day where she needs a nap, even if she doesn't know it, Right? And many times she doesn't, right? But she needs that rest. There's very real limitations to being a little child. The theme of all of this, if I were to like, I don't know, bring some kind of theme together out of these four things, that children aren't in control, that they don't know things, that they need the love of their parents and that they need rest, is that Jesus holds out this little child to his disciples in response to their question as an example of weakness being the posture being the position where we receive the blessings of the kingdom of God. There's other things we could pull out from this picture as well, but this is definitely one that Jesus means. That He's telling the disciples, while you are talking about greatness, remember that kingdom greatness is linked in an undeniable way to weakness. That weakness and leaning into it, owning it, naming it, provides the context, provides the place where the Spirit of God can work in powerful ways. I think this is why this was um, coming to my mind this morning. I have, I have um, times in leadership, and if you lead in any way, even if it's just with your own kids or your grandkids, you can probably relate to this. I have times where I feel pretty competent as a leader, and maybe God uses me less, you know, in those times. I don't know. Um, but then I have times where I feel like I'm way in over my head, you know? I just feel like I don't know what to do or what to say or what the right thing to do is, whatever. And it seems like there's ebbs and flows to that emotional journey in, in my leadership. And I'm a super emotional person, so I feel things deeply. And lately I've been in one of those ones where it's like, what, did, what am I doing? I don't, you know, I feel like I, there's so much I don't understand you know, or don't know. 
when I woke up yesterday morning and it hit me as a comfort, this is just what I heard the Lord saying to me. It was just, I heard him saying to me, Joel, I'm not asking you to do anything in this season except to be a little child. That's all I'm asking of you is just to be a little child. Um, just to recognize that you're not in control. Just to recognize that you don't know things. <laughs> it's always fun when God tells you you don't know things, right? <laughs> um, just to admit that I need the love of my Father in heaven, right? Um, to be in those places. <laughs> to admit that I need rest. That there's real limitations to my ability to lead and serve. Um, somehow that's a freeing place to be. I went downstairs last night, um, yesterday morning rather, it was still dark, with this passage, and I sat there and I'm reflecting on this, just feeling that the Lord said to me, all I'm asking you to be is a little child. And um, in that place, I, I had this thought that I expressed to the Lord. I said, oh, I wish I could. Do you ever feel this way? Like when you're in the midst of like all your adult responsibilities and the pressures of it and leadership and parenting and all this, just in the middle of that, I had a passing thought. Oh, I wish I could go back and be a little kid again, you know? I wish I could go. Wouldn't that be fun? And you know what? I just heard the Lord say to me, though, in that. Um, no, this is not about you romanticizing being a little kid back then. Because it is God's intention for us to grow up. See what I'm saying? What Jesus says in the passage is clear. He's not romanticizing childhood. Um, what he's saying is you grown men must change and become like a little child. You in your adulthood must change and become like a little child again in the place of your adult responsibilities, pressures, leadership. The question is not daydreaming about some past. Um, the question, the, the focus of that is not dreaming on some kind of past. The focus is God's saying, in where I've put you now, what does it look like to be childlike? In the place of leadership, in the place of parenting, what does it look like to be childlike in your parenting? Think about the paradox of that. What does it look to be childlike in leadership? Um, friends, I really believe that for us as a church, the more we can lean into childlikeness at this stage where we're at as the gospel tabernacle, uh, the more we'll see God do. I think a lot is hinging on this um, because God is already beginning to do things that are outside of the boundaries of our control. It's not that it's out of control. It's just him controlling it, not us, right? Um, and there are going to be temptations along the way to rein that stuff back in, to get it within the safety of our control. I think those are going to be critical junctures for us. To say, do we remain childlike and be okay not being in control? Or do we take it back and try to fit it within our box? I think we're going to have those choices in the future. Maybe we already have them in front of us. I think we're at a place now where we have to keep admitting as a church, as a family on mission, that there's a lot we don't know. I'm grateful for what we do know. I'm grateful for the places God has taught us. I'm grateful for the places we are continuing to learn, but we are in territory um, where 
there's just things we don't completely know or don't completely understand. Um, you know what made me think of this was this last week I was at district conference for our association of churches, and they had me do a seminar on a topic that I feel completely like unqualified to teach on, right? And so I do this seminar, and I couldn't do the seminar without talking about all of you, without talking about our story, after, you know, after all of these years, talking about the way God has moved among us. And afterwards, this guy from Oregon, uh, our main speaker, comes up to me and says, you know, and by the way, he pastors a church. It's one of the biggest churches in our denomination. He comes to me and says, hey, I'm flying a team out to you guys so we can learn some things about what's happening in Aliquippa. I'm like, I said to Steve afterwards, we walked out of the room, and I said, did I exaggerate that whole thing? Did I embellish? Did, I, did he hear something? But here's why that feels so, and honestly, how that made me feel was super overwhelmed and a bit pressured. And you know, you know why it made me feel that way? It's because we don't know what we're doing here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, yeah, what are we? I don't know. We don't know. You know what I mean? I, you can come out and observe. Maybe you'll know what's happening here. <laughs> um, we don't know. Um, and I think that we're going to come into places where a choice is going to be made. Do we keep leaning into the territory of the unknown? Or do we stick with what we can quantify, what we can understand, what we can wrap our minds around? I think I know what direction Diane is going in <laughs> this morning. She, she has made it clear to me. <laughs> yeah. And in all of this, we need the love of the Father. Um, whatever is getting built is getting built in the context of his love. And I'm finding more and more, with more things to pray for than I can keep up with, um, with more situations that need the miraculous than I have the ability to minister to, um, it's becoming more and more important for us just to receive his love, to get better at that, to let ourselves know how to, and experience how to receive from him because he has what we need and he's eager to give it. He's a good father. Amen? And then this thing about rest. Friends, I really believe that in this season, when the enemy's attack ramps up, and I do think that's all in some ways already happening, and there'll be more of it. When the enemy's attack ramps up, as we head into new territories on mission and in ministry, there are going to be times when the strategy, oddly enough, is to rest. When the strategy is to stop, when the strategy is to enjoy God, to enjoy his creation, to enjoy the good things that he has littered our lives with, and to enjoy his presence. Um, listen, there is a theme in scripture about warriors going to battle. And honestly, that's the theme that comes most naturally to my personality. If it comes time for us to fight in prayer, if it comes time for us to fight in ministry, I'm down with the fight. That's what comes naturally to me. But in this season, I just feel like the Lord is showing me there's times when it's going to feel like the enemy is raging all around us, and we have to remember he's pulling us into a battle 
that God has already told us he will fight for us. Amen? So we don't even need to go out there. I think there's going to be battles when the Lord is saying, no, you stay home. I got this one. Right? And discerning his voice in those places is going to be critical. Um, Here's how I want to just end today. Um, Our speaker at District Conference was talking just for a few moments about healing. And you know that we're part of an association of churches that believes that healing happens today, right? And we don't believe that just because, um, like, our denomination does. For us, it's like we think that's biblical. God reveals himself as healer. Um, And so we invite him as healer to work among us um, in powerful ways. Um, If you think about it, this is one of the benefits of practicing healing as a church, not just believing it, you know, not just having it as something we sing about or talk about, but practicing healing as a church. There's few things that make us confront our childlikeness than this, more than this, right? Um, we're, we never, there's few things that make us feel like, you know, more out of control than when our own bodies aren't doing what we want them to do, right? Um, There's something about sickness that makes us confront that, that makes us sit in that place with the Lord. Um, There's um, so much that you're talking about, like, there's things we don't know. Is there anything more mysterious than the work of Christ, our healer, in our midst? Um, And all of the joys and disappointments that come with that. You know, it's common for churches to try to erase the mystery out of their doctrines of healing, and they do it in two ways. They teach that Jesus doesn't heal today, which is an easy, tight, neat theological package that is emotionally much easier, trust me, to believe that he doesn't do these things and to just say that we're just waiting for the future blessing of the kingdom. But there's other churches, you know, that say he does it every single time, which is another way to deal with that emotional tension. We live in this place of joy and disappointment with healing, of breakthrough and suffering, and there's mystery in that. There's a lot we don't know when it comes to how Jesus heals the sick or leaves us waiting. Um, Every time we approach healing, we're coming like a child who needs their parent, who needs their mom, who needs their dad, um, saying, I need you to do something that I don't have. It's an exercise in receiving his love every single time. Um, And there's something about coming for healing that is this moment of just rest, of saying, I've tried to do everything I know to do. I don't know about you, when I get sick, I go into battle mode. Like as soon as I start like feeling the cold, I go and buy these special juices and vitamins and you know, I'm like, Chelsea, what oils do you have? And I like, I like I'm gonna fight this thing, right? Um, but I'm learning, maybe just as I get a little bit older, that sometimes what's really needed is just rest in God's presence receiving what he has to give, right? But Christ is healer. Craig, if you could come play. So we're just gonna have a moment to step into his healing because I think it has everything to do with childlikeness. As I was praying into this yesterday, I just felt the Lord saying um, that it's time for us, yet again, to test the depth of his grace when it comes to healing. Um to see how far his grace will go, to go yet deeper into the stream.
And I'm just believing, there's something in my heart about this Sunday. I'm just believing for a new season of testimonies of this healing grace. Let me share this with you. Um, it was a few, um, it was a few years ago and we had just had a major setback when it came to praying for the sick because it's so, it's so much easier not to pray for the sick, especially when it comes to life and death things. And major, major wound, major setback. And I, um, I was at a friend's house in Georgia and I was just grieving this. I was shedding some tears. In the middle of just being honest with the Lord about my disappointment, um, he just dropped what I felt like was a prayer into my heart. And here was the prayer, and I've been praying it for all of you for a number of years now. That in our church, there would be no secondhand experiences only of healing. That everyone would have a firsthand experience. Here's why I feel emboldened to pray that prayer. Because we would never be okay with secondhand experiences when it comes to Christ our Savior. Right? Well, maybe you'll experience him as Savior, but maybe not, right? We expect that all of us will step into that experience because it's who he is. So my prayer for us has been, Jesus, reveal yourself as healer. Whether it's because you were in the room when someone got healed or you got healed in your own body or someone you know and love got healed. But my prayer for all of us has been that we would not just survive off of secondhand stories because you know what happens? When we only have secondhand stories, we think this isn't for us. We think it's for a special group of people. Um, the enemy starts speaking to us, those orphan messages. But friends, I'm telling you, in the place of your childlikeness, Jesus is healer, and he wants to meet us in these places. Amen? All right, can you just close your eyes for a second? Jesus, we just invite you to come be our healer. Come, Holy Spirit. And we come as children. We practice in obedience to your command that we must change and become like little children. We practice in this moment. We're not in control. There's things we don't understand. Um, we need your love, Jesus. We're like children who need loved. Lord, we need rest. Some of us have just bought into the lie. We've even transferred it to good causes, to ministry, but we've bought into the lie that what's moral and what's upstanding is never resting. But that's a lie. That's not what you commanded. Um, you are blessed when we rest and when we enjoy you. So we do in this moment. Come, Holy Spirit. Now, just with your eyes closed, let me share this with you really quickly. Um, I have chronic neck issues. Some of you may know that. And it started when I was really young, and um, the chiropractor tells me he can see in the x-ray that's just genetic. Both my sister and my dad have chronic neck issues and to the same degree that I have. I think it's just the way our vertebrae are formed in our neck. And this has been like a part of my life for a long time. Honestly, it's a small thing. Some days it hurts really bad. Most days I'm able to function just fine. Um, but I rarely bring this to the Lord for healing. I'm just confessing. I rarely bring it to him to heal. Um, and just as I was reflecting on this passage yesterday morning, I just heard the Lord say, like, 
This is an opportunity for you to be childlike, to admit that you need something that you don't have, to bring something before me. And so for you, it may not just be like the big things. It may be the really small things as well. Um, I'm confessing this to you because I'm committed to bringing my neck issues to the Lord, to letting people pray for it um, as an expression of childlikeness in this season.